So good to see everybody today. The brave and the bold here this morning on the snow apocalypse we have, or ice apocalypse. So glad that you're here. And as Buck said, for those of you that are that are home this morning, we're, we're glad that you're uh, going to be joining us later today online. Pray for us crazy people who are here this morning that we don't get snowed in by the time this bad boy is over. I did hear that George has a, a snack drawer up in his office, so if we get locked in, we got food upstairs, I'll lead the way. Um, but it's so good to see you guys this morning as we continue in our study of, of what it means to be a biblical man, a man after God's own heart. And as you know, we're diving deep on what God says are those essentials, those disciplines of being His men. And this morning, we're going to talk about compassion. There's so many places in Scripture that we could go to and talking about compassion, but one of my favorite places is, is Matthew chapter 9, um, especially for those of you in college uh, ministry. This is a very familiar passage to you, Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Now, I personally love this passage because it talks about the compassion of Jesus. You know, Jesus is talking to us. <laughs> Are those the lights flickering? We'll get through it. Jesus is talking about his heart, his compassion. And the passage relates the heart of Jesus to our mission as disciples of Jesus. And we're going to see how this all coalesces, but we're talking about the compassion of Jesus, and he's relating that um, in regards to our mission as his disciples. Spurgeon said this text weighed on his heart more than any other passage. And he meant this in a positive way. He said it haunted him perpetually. And I pray that it haunts us too, positively, because it teaches us so much about what it means to be a man after God's own heart and the world in which we live. Okay, so let's read it together. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. Hear the word of God. And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord for the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful again for this uh, Thursday morning where even without breakfast, we can come together and earnestly study your word together. We pray for our brothers who aren't with us, that as they study it, and as we study it this morning, that you would teach us, that you wouldn't merely inform us, but transform us by the power of your spirit, that we truly might become more and more your men and the disciples of Jesus Christ in a world that desperately needs disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the blessed name of King Jesus. Amen. Uh, years ago, some professors and researchers conducted an experiment. I think it was late 70s, early 80s. Um, y'all may have heard this story, so you might know the exact date. But professors and researchers um, decided to find out whether if seminary students practiced what they preached. right? And so they met individually with 40 students under the guise of helping them with their dissertations. And so this is what they told them. They told them to walk down the street from the school to a nearby building where they would have impromptu discussions about two topics, the Good Samaritan and what they thought might be the, the, the biggest concerns of pastoral ministry. Now, as they did that, they also hired an actor 
and they dress this actor pretty homely. And this actor, um, as the students would approach him, would groan and would hunch over and fall to the ground as if he needed help. And this is what the researchers found. More than half of those students walked right by that man. The researcher (laughs) made this note. He said, some were planning their dissertation on the Good Samaritan, literally stepped over this slumped body as they hurried along to study the Bible. Now, I value this story, one, because I am a fan of irony, and you cannot get more ironic than that, (laughs) studying the Good Samaritan and walking over a slumped body. I also value it, too, because I think for me and maybe for you, it serves as a mirror, this story, and possibly, possibly a warning, right? Because isn't it true that it's easy for us as Christians, as God's men, to become easily distracted from what it means to truly be a Christian and to live as a Christian out in this world. We can easily become distracted. Sometimes we get distracted by good things. Perhaps, you know, we fall under the illusion that being a Christian merely means we're growing in our knowledge of the Bible and in our knowledge of Jesus, which is great. That's good. We're commanded to do that, but sometimes we can make that the main thing. Or maybe we make the main thing becoming more moral, which, again, is good. Going to church more often, drinking less often, our wives would appreciate that. That's a good thing. Perhaps we think that being a Christian merely means that we give to the capital campaign, we go to Bible study, we do this, that, or the other. Good things, but not, but not the main thing. Now, as Christians, we know what the main thing is, right? To be a Christian means that we are in Christ, and we've been called to live like Christ. As those who have been saved to Jesus, united to him, it's no longer I, Barton, who lives, but Christ who lives in me. By God's grace, as Christians, we've been transformed into little Christ, and we're called to reflect Christ to this lost world. And that mostly means that we take up the mission of Christ that he has commissioned every single one of us into to make disciples of all nations, praying and laboring to make earth as it is in heaven. We know these things. But nevertheless, even those of us who who know our Bibles, given the, the noise of our culture, the hustle and bustle of life, and our fallen minds, it is so easy to forget the main things. That's why I love this passage, this short but very important passage, because Jesus gives us a very memorable training of what it means to be his guys. Just after this, in chapter 10, he's going to commission his disciples out into the world to take up his mission. But before he commissions them, and as he sends us out this morning to be his representatives in the world, this passage shows us what it means to be men after God's own heart, his faithful disciples out in the world. Three things, and they're simple yet difficult, as we always take note of in this this Bible study. The first thing is, we need to learn to see as Jesus saw. If we're going to be growing disciples of Jesus Christ, men after God's own heart, we need to learn to see as Jesus saw and feel, secondly, and feel as Jesus felt, thirdly, in order to do what Jesus did. To be growing men of God, disciples of Jesus out in the world, we need to see as Jesus saw and feel as Jesus felt in order to live as Jesus lived. It's a great summary for this passage, and it's our outline this morning. So let's just go ahead and dive in really quick. If we're going to be men after God's own heart and disciples of Jesus out in the world, first off, we need to see as Jesus saw. Or to put it in another way, in order to do what Jesus did, 
We first must feel as Jesus felt, but we will never feel as Jesus felt unless we learn to see as Jesus saw. Say that three times fast, all right? But it's true. Now let's look into the text. Um, Almost exactly identical to Matthew chapter 4, verses 23, as Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, that summary statement of what his ministry was, we see it again in verse 35. Matthew is reminding us about the ministry of Jesus, what it encompassed, three things. He was teaching in the synagogues, he was proclaiming or preaching the kingdom of God, and he was healing every disease and affliction. Those are the three pillars of Jesus' ministry, teaching, preaching, and healing the sick. That's what he was doing, that's what he was training his disciples doing, that's what he's commissioned us to do. Now on this particular day, as they were approaching this city, presumably Jesus and his disciples saw the exact same thing, right? They saw the approaching crowd. But it's clear from the text that we just saw that Jesus saw that crowd differently. He saw that crowd with different eyes than the eyes that his disciples saw that crowd with. Now, what are the things that Jesus saw? Well, first off, he saw the great need of the people in that crowd. We see that in verse 36b. Jesus, first off, saw the great need of the people in this crowd. Now, there's no reason for us to think that this crowd was unusual There were sick people in this crowd. There were people in this crowd with disabilities. There's probably demon-possessed people in this crowd too, but that was nothing to the disciples. They've seen this everywhere they went. But it's clear that the, the disciples, when they saw those people, just like they've done before, just like we sometimes often do, they saw those people as a distraction to Jesus's main ministry. Just like they'd said with the kids, remember in our study in Matthew, these people are a distraction. Jesus is way too busy for these people. We're certainly way too busy for for these people. We've all heard the adage before, ministry would be easy if it wasn't for all the people. That's how they went about ministry early on, these these disciples. But again, Jesus saw, saw beneath the surface, he saw beneath the behaviors, and he saw a great need in that crowd. And we see the first thing that he saw. He saw that those people were harassed and helpless. Now just think about that. There were definitely sick people. There were definitely lame people in this crowd. But the majority of the people in that crowd looked as if their lives were put together. They probably looked very similar to the crowds that we find ourselves in at Walmart or wherever else. They were just people. But Jesus saw beneath the behaviors. He saw beneath the surface. And he saw that they're harassed and helpless. The scholar R.T. France has a great commentary on Matthew. He says that those two participles, harassed and helpless, imply that the people in that crowd were oppressed and exhausted by life, and there was no one to help them. So just think about it. They looked like they were put together, but Jesus saw beneath the surface and saw that these folks were drowning and the day-in, day-out hustle and bustle of life. They were suffering trials. They were suffering tribulations. They were suffering deprivations. And what's worse is that no one cared about them. Everybody else was just focusing on their in lives, and no one cared about their deprivations, their sufferings, their trials, and their tribulations. The disciples saw them as distractions, but Jesus knew that each of them had a story, a story like our stories. A story of brokenness and a story of great need. That's what Jesus saw. Art and I were talking just a moment ago about how wonderful Chick-fil-A is. Can I get an amen? Jesus chicken, delicious. Favorite favorite fast food restaurant. But this reminds me of a a commercial I saw from Chick-fil-A. I think it was a training video. Some of y'all may have seen this. But it takes place inside a Chick-fil-A restaurant. The workers are behind the counter 
and they're looking as the customers walk in. And as the customers walk in, there's a script over their head, like a little tagline. So the first customer that walks in, over her head says, a single mom of three. And she looked exhausted, right? The next person that walks in over his head says, suffering from cancer. And he was the businessman. He looked like his life was put together. But over his head says, suffering from cancer. A third person that walks in says, just lost his job. Now, the point of this training video is to show us and their employees why Chick-fil-A is a much better establishment than, say, McDonald's or wherever else. And of course it is, because, again, their chicken is delicious. But it's telling us that they're different, that they're better, because they care about people like you and me. They know that we have stories. At least that's what the training video is implying. They, they know our stories, and they're kind to us. They show us dignity. It was my pleasure to serve you at 530 this morning, Barton Kimbrough. And I love that, right? Because it reminds me of my Jesus and your Jesus. Our Jesus is a kind and gentle and caring Savior because he cares about our stories, doesn't he? Of course he cares about our stories. The incarnation declares it. Jesus cares about you so much and your stories so much that he became man, took on our humanity. He entered our mess so that we might enter his story. Right, And in his life, and even now, Jesus even invites us to bring him our burdens, to bring him our distractions, to bring him our great need. In Matthew 11, where he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden in this life, and I will give you rest. That's our Savior, right? It's so easy for us to dismiss people. It's so easy for us to miss people because they're going to be a burden to us. And it's true. People that have great need in our lives are going to be a burden. But we're called to bear one another's burdens. But nevertheless, they are. There might be people in our life who are just snobby. Or have been rude to us. Or are so completely different from us. We know in our minds that we're, we're not going to have anything to get along with. Right? And so our natural, our natural reaction in this fallen world as fallen people is simply to dismiss them. But this, but this passage, this chapter tells us there's a reason people are the way that they are. There's a reason we are the way that we are. And therefore, Jesus is teaching us is to look beneath the surface, look beneath behaviors and see a story, someone who needs to be loved, someone who has a great need. Now, the next thing, the greatest need that Jesus shows us in the crowds are that these people were sheep without a shepherd. Now, this metaphor, it really gets down to the brass tacks. Those in the crowd were lost. Sheep without a shepherd means that they did not know Jesus. And that ultimately is the great need, is it not, that, that people out there don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's worse here, Jesus is telling us that those who were supposed to be caring for them, the shepherds in Israel had abandoned them. Jesus is referencing Ezekiel 34, a passage in which God condemns the shepherds of Israel for not doing their jobs. They became distracted with all the things that you could get distracted with in this life, most notably power, but they became distracted and they allowed God's people to wander off and they became vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one. So God condemns them. But brothers, it's in that same passage that we get the messianic promise where God says one day and one day soon, I am going to intervene and I am going to rescue the lost sheep of Israel. And Jesus in Matthew chapter nine says that day is today. I am the good shepherd, 
And I have come to rescue these lost sheep that the world does not care about. And he looks at his disciples and he invites them to come alongside himself to rescue them. So that they might see them as as Jesus sees them. Brothers, there's only two groups of people in the world. Sheep in the fold or those without a shepherd. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. For Jesus, people's identities are not wrapped up in what they do or what they have done. They are wrapped up in who they are in him. And Jesus says, if you're going to be my men, if you're going to be my disciples out in the world, you need to begin to see that too. So Jesus saw the great need of people. The second thing he saw in verse 37 was the spiritual potential for those harassed and helpless people. What does he say? He says that the harvest is plentiful. This is a very important metaphor that Jesus seems to want us to grasp because he uses it elsewhere. He uses it in John chapter 4, verse 35. He uses it in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. He even uses it in Acts chapter 18, verse 10, where he told the once fearful Paul, Paul, (laughs) who was afraid, Paul, don't be afraid. I want you to go into that city called Corinth and preach the gospel. Why? I have many people in that city, many people in that city who have yet to been gathered up. Brothers, isn't it true um, that sometimes we can dismiss these words of Jesus out of fear? Right? I do this. I don't want to put my junk on you, okay? But this is what I struggle with. Oh, well, those guys over there, they don't want to hear about Jesus. They're way too busy, right? I'm too busy, but they're definitely way too busy. Work is going, I mean, they've got a lot of stuff going on. I'll I'll pick another day to share with them the gospel of Jesus. Or Jack, man, that guy is one hard-hearted fool. There is no way he would ever accept Jesus. He's in some pretty dark stuff, so I'm just not going to waste my time with it. And there's similar arguments, but have y'all made those in your mind before? I, I, I certainly have. I've thought of that way to get myself out of sharing the gospel of Jesus with others, and maybe you have too. But brothers, just think about it. Why would we ever think that way? Right? Because Jesus, first off, we know that he's going with us in this work, which he tells us in Matthew 28. But also, he's given us a leg up in this great work he's given us to do. He has given us all of the facts. First off, every single person has eternity written on their hearts. Of course they do. They were made in God's image. Secondly, Jesus told us that everybody has a great need, and that great need is Jesus. And in this passage, he tells us that that harvest field, brothers, is ripe. Which means that there's people in our lives that are desperate to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They just don't know it yet because no one said the name Jesus to them before. So we have to ask ourselves the question with our, with our eyes. Have we looked at our families, our extended families, with our crazy brother and our mean uncle? Have we looked at our workplaces? Have we looked at our schools? Have we looked at our neighborhoods and seen it as a harvest field that is ripe? Because, brother, there's, there, there's great need in all of those places. But the good news is, is that we have the provision, the answer for that need. And his name is Jesus. Jesus saw the great need. He saw that the harvest field is ripe. Lastly, he saw the great need for workers. We see that in verse 37b. Isn't it interesting, on one hand, Jesus takes the weight off our shoulders. He goes, guys, it's my harvest, okay? I am the Lord of the harvest. I'm the one that's in control of this. 
I'm the one who's ultimately gathering up the sheep. You don't have to save anybody. All right, I'm going to be the one that's doing that. So on one hand, he says that. But on the other hand, right, he uses broken vessels like me and you to be the mechanism in which he accomplishes his kingdom purposes. Isn't that wild? I mean, this is the the tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, that phrase that, that I sometimes use, the dignity of causality, where we know that God is the one that's doing everything, but he gives us the dignity and the honor and the privilege to be the people in which he accomplishes his kingdom purposes. It's amazing, and that's what's happening here. But again, we can easily snake our way out of this. Sometimes we say, well, that's the pastor's job, okay? I'm not in vocational ministry. That's those people that, you know, have studied the Bible at school. That's what they're supposed to do. Some of us say that, but let me also share with you, pastors say the same thing, okay? (laughs) We do. It's like, I I was called to preach the gospel. I'm not a gifted evangelist, okay? We're going to leave that to Brett Wynn. He's the evangelist of the group, okay? But brothers, we we have no business of saying that. Because whether if we're in vocational ministry or not, or whether if we're gifted or not, God has given us this commission to make disciples of all nations. As those who have tasted the salvation of Christ, to speak with others about that salvation in which we've experienced, or as, or as another person has said, our job is simply to be a beggar showing other beggars where they can find free food. The bread of heaven. So if we're going to be Jesus' disciples, we need to start seeing as Jesus saw. He saw the great need of people, ultimately their spiritual need. He saw that the harvest field was ripe. Right? People are desperate for this good news. And we also must see the need for workers. But before we go on to our second point, there's just two things I want us just to think about. First off, brothers, this is part and parcel for being a Christian. This is not extracurricular activity. It's part and parcel, these new eyes. It's just, we have them as being Christians. God tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 when he describes us as new creations, agents of reconciliation, agents of redemption. As new creations, in layman's terms, he's telling us we've received new eyeballs. We no longer regard people according to flesh as the world does or as we used to. As those who are united to Jesus Christ, we're now able to see other people as Christ sees them. So you and I have the ability, right, to see people this way. So the other thing then is, is that we have to discipline ourselves because we're imperfect in this life. We're becoming like Christ, right, but we're not perfect. So we need to discipline ourselves with this, with this new sight that we have. And so here's just one suggestion. We must make time in our calendars to be distracted by people. In chapters 8 and 9, when Jesus is in the midst of his very important ministry, he's confronted by these random people. But it's in those confrontations that we see some of those important lessons in the gospel and some of the most amazing miracles. It's in these distractions. His disciples would have called them distractions. Jesus just called it ministry. You know, he's on the way to another town. And what happens? A leper pops up. And he has to deal with the leper. He's trying to talk to someone and heal someone else. And the satyrian guard pops up. There's demoniacs everywhere, people with leprosy and and people who are lame are just all over the place. And they're coming to Jesus with their desperate need. But it's in those distractions that those folks were loved, that they were cared for, that they were healed, delivered, and saved. Why? Because Jesus didn't see them as distractions because he knew that the main purpose of ministry isn't building campaigns, isn't Bible studies, it's people. And he loved them. 
because he saw their stories. He knew their stories. So brothers, if we're going to grow as disciples of Jesus, we don't add things to our schedules. We eliminate things from our already busy schedules to allow ourselves the time, the margins, and the space to see people as Jesus truly sees them. And sometimes it takes us time to do that. And so when we start seeing people as Jesus saw them, we'll start feeling as Jesus felt, which is our second point. To be men after God's own heart, we must feel as Jesus felt. We see this in verse 36a. Before Jesus sends out the 12 in chapter 10, he tells them the motive behind his entire ministry, behind it all. And he says this, it's compassion. It's an emotion. (laughs) Now, I know as Presbyterians, we don't often deal well with emotions, but Jesus is saying in chapter 9 that that was the motive behind his entire ministry, compassion. Now, before we move on, just a little caveat. What this text is not saying, it's not saying that there was a point in Jesus' life where he was compassionless, and only after seeing the people did he become compassionate. That's not what this is saying. That's not what I'm implying. What this text is showing, Jesus is giving us a portrait of who he is in his essence. He's letting us peer into his heart. To put it another way, Jesus is is pulling back the curtain and inviting us to peer down to the very center of his being so that we can see what he's like. And what is he like? He's compassionate. The author of Hebrews tells us this. He says that that, uh, Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He's the radiance of God's glory. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. And what that means is, is every time that we look at Jesus, we see a perfect manifestation of who God is. And brothers, who is God? Psalm 145, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Jesus is showing us a portrait of who he is. He is our compassionate Savior. Now let's just think about that for a moment. The original word compassion here is not present in classical Greek. It was only in Koine Greek, right? the, the language that the Bible was written in, the version of Greek. Nor was it really present in Septuagint, the, the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. It seems that the four gospel writers had to invent a word to describe Jesus. And this is what this compassionate word means in the New Testament Greek. It means a striving of bowels. His bowels cramped up is what it's describing. It's a visceral gut response to the suffering of others that compelled him to enter into their stories. So just think about this. When the disciples looked at Jesus as Jesus was seeing something, in this case a crowd, they had to invent a word to describe the emotion they saw on his face because they hadn't seen anything like it. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' gut-level response to the burdens of others, to the sufferings of others, to the distractions, wasn't indifference, nor was it annoyance. He didn't blame these people for whatever it was that they were suffering. He didn't go to the other side of the road. He didn't look at them and say, God only helps those who help themselves try harder. He didn't do any of that. But with tears in his eyes and pain in his belly, he had compassion upon them. Isn't it true that in the Bible we never see God being provoked to compassion? He is provoked to anger, but he's never provoked to compassion. Compassion is just who God is in neutral. It's his essence. 
He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now apply this to yourself. While you were still an enemy, while you were still a wretch, while you were still a sinner, the King of kings, the creator of all things, looked upon you with compassion. He is separate from our sin, but he is not indifferent to the consequences of our sin. He enters into our stories, into our mess, into our brokenness, just like he did the woman at the well. Because he has compassion on broken people. I'm reminded of Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He has a wonderful description of who God is in his compassion. He says, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Time and time again, it's the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable, the undeserving, who didn't simply receive the mercy of Jesus, but to whom Jesus most naturally gravitated towards. We cannot over-exaggerate the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ. Our own testimonies tell us that, and so does the testimony of scriptures, which describes Jesus as a friend of sinners. He looked upon the harassed and helpless people, those who were lost without a shepherd, and all that entailed, all the behavior, and he had compassion upon them. That's just who our God is. Now, our world tells us to look after you and your own, to step on who you need to step on in order to get ahead. We know our world lacks kindness. And we know there's a lot of popular pastors out in our world who do a great job of riling up their audience by getting them ready for all the cultural wars, but they're not making a dent for God's kingdom. Why? Because they lack compassion. They're great at building their own brands, but they're not making the kingdom of God because they lack compassion. I love what uh, J.C. Ryle says. He says, a man who does not feel for the souls of the lost simply does not have the mind of Jesus because he did. So Jesus, the perfect man, shows us what it means to be men after God's own heart. We are to be filled with compassion. And again, we can do this. We can have compassion. We can love people who don't otherwise deserve it. Why? Because we have been first loved by Christ. So brothers, if we're lacking compassion, just remember your testimony. Remember the compassion that Christ has shown you and you'll be filled with it, which is important because it's when we feel as Jesus felt, we will live as Jesus lived, which is our last and final point. In order to be men's after God's own heart, his disciples in the world, we must do as Jesus did. Verse 38. Now, what did Jesus do in this passage and in the surrounding context? He ministered to people's needs and he prayed and he calls us to pray for more labors. First off, Jesus ministered to people's spiritual but also physical needs, right? The three-pronged ministry of Jesus, preaching, teaching, and healing the sick, right? He loved people holistically. He ministered to their bodies and souls, and he calls us to do the same. James tells us the same thing in harsher terms, but in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also if faith by itself doesn't have works is dead. He is saying that, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but a true and saving faith in Christ always manifests itself in the works of Christ. 
The point is, is that we are called to love people holistically as Jesus did, body and soul. Now, this does not mean that you and I are going to go out there tomorrow and start performing miracles, okay? We're not called to go to the cemeteries and raise people from the dead as some folks out in California are trying to do right now. We're not going to spit on mud and rub it in people's eyes and give them eyesight. We're just not, we're not going to perform these, these miracles. The only people that did that were Jesus and those apostles that he commissioned to do those things. Nevertheless, as men after God's own heart, we are called to love people holistically. Now, how do we do that? Here's a great passage for practical examples. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 34 through chapter or through verse 40. Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on the right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You and I are called to minister to the souls of others. That's most important, sharing the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is calling us also to minister to the physical needs of those around us. Why? Because it authenticates the message of the gospel that Jesus loves them. Do you ever think about that? When Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he revealed himself to those around him. That he was the way, the truth, and the life, most important. But he also healed people knowing full well that they would eventually die. Why did he do that? One of my friends, Tezar Putra, who's a pastor in Indonesia, he said this. Jesus wanted to give them a taste of his future kingdom benefits that his people experience in heaven. When Jesus died on the cross, he did more than take away our sins. He also made us citizens of heaven, citizens of his future country, a kingdom with no more tears, no more lame, blind, no more death, no more unpaid hospital uh, bills, no more family dysfunction, no more depression, no more deprivation, a place where you can feel safe enough to trust others. And as his disciples, we are called to live that way as outposts of the new heavens and the new earth, giving people a foretaste of that future kingdom that we offer them in our gospel presentations. We minister to the physical and spiritual needs of those around us. And I think ultimately and most importantly, we pray, which is the the major to-do that we see in this passage. We pray. The night before Jesus called his disciples elsewhere, he spent all night praying for these 12 laborers. All throughout his ministry, he prayed. Day and night, he prayed. He calls us to pray, and brothers, we must. Another J.C. Ryle quote, Personal working for souls is good. Giving money is good. But prayer is best of all. By prayer we reach him without whom money and work are in vain. We obtain the Holy Spirit. Brothers, we must be in prayer. We must pray for our city. We must pray for the souls 
and our city. We must pray for fellow laborers and we must pray for our own courage that we together would go out into the harvest field and minister in his name. It is easy for us to be distracted from who we're supposed to be as Christians and what we're supposed to be doing. One guy who had every reason to be distracted was a man named Zachariah. Zachariah was and is a Christian, but when he was a little boy, he was confronted by another little boy named Yasser. This was in Sudan. Yasser um, was from a very devout and radicalized Sunni family, and like his parents believed, Christians like Zechariah were infidels. And so one day at school, he confronted Zechariah, and after breaking nearly every single bone in his body, he dragged him to a hedge of bushes behind the school and left him to die alone. And it was savage. And he almost did die. Years later, as Yasser grew as a teenager at this point, his world came undone because his favorite uncle, who happened to be a leader in the brother. Uh, or the Brotherhood of, of Muslim Brotherhood in Sudan, he himself, that leader, became a Christian. And it just blew young Yasser's mind. Like, what in the world just happened? And so this uncle uh, confronted all of his worldviews and made him question everything. And in that moment, though he didn't immediately come to Christ, he knew that he wanted more of Jesus even after his family disowned him. Years later into his 30s, at this point, Yasser is a Christian, And even more than that, he's a Bible teacher at a Bible college in Egypt. And one day he's giving a lecture and he looked out into the crowd of his classroom and he saw one pastor in the way back with an eye patch and a twisted leg weeping. And so after class, he went to that pastor and said, are you okay? And with a smile and tear in his eyes, that man said, my name is Zachariah. And that was the little boy that you beat 25 years ago. Then he opened his Bible. And there on the first page was the name of Yasser written by the broken hand of a boy. And he said, I've never stopped thinking of you since that day, nor have I ever ceased praying for you. And I'm so thankful we are now brothers in Christ. A boy, a man who had every reason to be distracted from getting into that harvest field. Never ceased praying for the man who almost killed him because he knew, like Jesus, that underneath the behaviors, he was harassed and helpless and a sheep without a shepherd. So he prayed. Brothers, if we're going to be men after God's own heart, disciples out in the harvest field, we must see as Jesus saw, feel as Jesus felt, in order to do as Jesus did. But I'm telling you right now, what will compel you most of all to get out there is to remember the compassion that Christ has shown you. So brothers, let us rest in the gospel and let us get in that harvest field. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the gospel that tells us we are indeed sinful, but in Jesus Christ, we're more loved than we ever dared to imagine. So we pray the prayer that Paul taught us to pray in Ephesians, that you would awaken us to the great dimensions, the endless dimensions of your love for us, that we so might be compelled to love other people as you would have us. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.